Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you. And also with you. <laughs> I miss being with you last week on Easter Sunday. Uh, I was with our family who were all together. All the kids were with us. That was fun. And uh, I know you're in good hands with Jason. Um, someone asked me when I came in if we were still on the series, What Really Matters? Um, and, and we're not, so we're just off to <laughs> things that don't really matter. <laughs> so sorry about that. Uh, if you want to go and find another class at this point, where maybe they are talking about something that matters. Uh, you can do that. Won't be offended. Um, I hated not being here last week because I really wanted uh, to think about the the Easter story with you. But we're in Easter tide, so um, I don't know everything that Jason talked about with you last week. Uh, and if there's if it was repeat from me today, then we'll just assume that it matters. Um, I've been thinking about uh, John 20 for a month or so actually and that's really what I want to talk about today and I know uh, you heard some on uh, John 20 last week and you heard some on John 20 today but I'm still I'm still stuck on the first part of John 20 Um, so I, I want us to talk a little bit about this opening couple scenes in John 20, uh, the resurrection, because I really do think it matters. And um, I don't know about you, but if you're like me when I think about, if you've grown up in the church, and I know a lot of you did, not all of you, but a lot of you did, and if you're like me, you've heard the resurrection stories so much that um, I've sort of constructed my own kind of harmony of the Gospels, you know, we kind of put them all together and create one story. And so when I think of the resurrection, I sort of take a little bit from Matthew and a little bit from Mark and a little bit from Luke and a little bit from John. I don't even know I'm doing that, right? But I think in my imagination, the way I sort of think of and imagine uh, that early first day of the week scene, um, I think I've kind of cobbled together a whole bunch of stuff. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that. Um, but what I've been thinking about for the last month, I was just trying to think about, um, I've been reading this 20th chapter of John for a month or so, and I've been thinking, what is, what is John trying to say? What's the gospel writer of John trying to communicate here? And if I just set aside the other three Gospels just, just for this morning. Not that they're not important or not that they're contradictory. I'm not really concerned about any of that. I'm just wondering, what, what is it that John was trying to communicate in his story that I might miss because I'm, when I'm reading this story, I'm filling in all the other things that I'm sure are there because of the other Gospels? And so I just, I think he might be, it's occurred to me over the last month that he might be saying some things that all these years I've missed, and you feel kind of silly about that when you miss things. 
Um, but we're back to the sort of inexhaustible character of Scripture, that there's always, no matter how many times you've heard the story, maybe there's things there to see uh, that you haven't seen today, uh, before. So today I just want us to kind of walk through that, that very familiar story uh, in John 20 and maybe look at some things that we've noticed and maybe think about some connections that John may have wanted us to make um, that if we were paying close attention to this story in light of other things that John has told us in other parts of the gospel, there might be interesting things to pick up on that if in my rush uh, to kind of fill in all the gaps with the other stories in the gospels, I just might have missed. And so, so that's where we're about today. And I hope by the time you're, we're done uh, that you might think maybe um, it matters. So it begins by saying, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So the main character in these first 18 verses is Mary Magdalene. Um, did you talk a lot about Mary Magdalene last week? Mm -mm. No. Not so much? Okay, good. They left me something to do. <laughs> I always like that when it happens. <laughs> so so what, do we, uh, what do we know about Mary Magdalene? What do we think we know about Mary Magdalene? Anybody? I know I don't let you talk very much. I'm not going to let you talk very much today either, but I hadn't seen you for a week, so I thought I'd let you talk just for a minute. What do we think we know about Mary Magdalene? Was she the one that washed Jesus' feet? Was she the one that washed Jesus' feet? That's a really good question. Yeah. When did she have long hair? Did you dry her hair? Yeah. That certainly is uh, a tradition, but there's actually no evidence no. in Scripture. <laughs> You're not wrong to think that. I mean, in fact, it's been uh, an interpretation. Um, and we'll come back to that, why we think that, because you, you didn't make that up. Um, well, you might have, but I mean, um, you didn't necessarily make it up, okay? You would be in good company. In fact, uh, almost all the Baroque and Renaissance art that depicts Mary Magdalene uh, depicts her as that unnamed woman in the gospel who washes Jesus' feet with her hair, um, considered to be a prostitute, yeah. right? And so a lot of people think Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, although scripture nowhere indicates her as such. So it's interesting. I mean, that's uh, one of the things that we often think of. Isn't, uh, she had the seven devils. No, you're right. Uh, in one of the other Gospels, she is mentioned uh, in a list of women, and as an aside, it says that uh, she was the one out of whom Jesus cast uh, seven demons, which is about the only thing. And, and in that group of women, it also says, and these women uh, supported the disciples, right? And so that's pretty much the two things that we know about her outside of um, the crucifixion scene and the resurrection scene um, is one that she, Jesus seems to have healed her 
early on, and that she seems to be part of a group of women who had resources that they were sort of patrons of the disciples. They supported the disciples financially. That's about all we really know about her from the Gospels. And we don't, know, we don't even know any of that from John, as it turns out. Uh, Mary Magdalene doesn't show up in John until the foot of the cross. First time she's mentioned in John, actually. Which I think is partly why people may have made, up, made some connections. I mean, part of the confusing thing is, I mean, the reason people have often aligned her uh, with various people some people have aligned her in the Gospel of John with the woman taken in adultery, um, the unnamed woman. Um, there are lots of unnamed women, and the women who are named are almost always Mary. <laughs> it's so confusing. If you can figure out all the Marys, I mean, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have Mary Magdalene. You have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, right? You have Mary uh, of Clopas. Um, you have Mary, the sister of Martha, right? Sister of Lazarus. Um, so if, if there's a woman in scripture and you're just trying to remember who it is, just say Mary and you've got about a 50% chance of being right. Um, so there's all the, so you have all these Marys, and then you have all these unnamed women. And actually, in the 6th century, Gregory the Great, uh, one of the uh, popes, actually announced during one of his sermons that he had this all figured out, that Mary Magdalene was this woman, right, who had washed Jesus' feet. And so it sort of became an accepted interpretation, even though there's really no basis for it in Scripture. It's sort of been handed down and then was enshrined in famous art. And so, but just to kind of back up from that, um, we don't really know that. I mean, we can't say for sure it wasn't, but we really have no scriptural evidence to suspect that it really, that it was, that Mary Magdalene was. Uh, the woman that washed Jesus' feet. So what we know here is that she, she was, uh, she's the uh, only woman uh, who's named in each of the Gospels uh, as having been here early in the morning on the first day of the week. Um, all four Gospels name her as being there. And notice John starts off by just naming her alone. <laughs> right? Um, and so that, that's itself. So she's a pretty prominent figure in this story. Um, and she goes while it's still dark. Early. Early. Um, in John, the Gospel of John, you know, has a, a real fascination with the imagery of light and dark, right? Um, that's light and dark is one of the primary uh, images that the, the writer John plays with. And so it's not entirely uh, clear. I think John, the, the writer John is, is maybe saying more than the sun wasn't up yet, right? Um, Mary has 
Mary Magdalene has seen uh, this, this person who healed her, gave, gave her new life. And we don't know what exactly her malady was, um, but clearly if you had seven demons, however one wants to think of that, um, and the fact that now she's a follower of Jesus and she supports him, she's given a completely new life by Jesus. Um, considers him teacher and rabbi. And she, like several other women, and one man, at least mentioned here, stands at the foot of the cross and sees the life of this life giver drain from his body slowly. Um, must have been agonizing to have thought, we thought for sure he was the one. Thought for sure he was the one. And John's Gospel suggests that while Jesus is hurriedly taken down from the cross, he does, he is anointed, he's placed in a borrowed tomb. And so John doesn't say she goes to anoint the body. The assumption is she's going to do what any respectable <coughs> friend or loved one does at first opportunity, and that is go be near the dead body of the one that you want to grieve. She's going to grieve. She's going to mourn. And in, in her, she herself is cloaked in darkness as she approaches the tomb. And of course she finds that the stone has been moved, which is alarming. <coughs> and she assumes what anyone would assume. It's like, great. I mean, as if things couldn't gotten any worse, right? The only consolation you have, I mean, all of us have been there. All of us have lost someone dear to us. And even though the, the person has died, for many of us, just to have a few moments near to mourn, that lost loved one is incredibly important to all of us. And now she's been robbed of that opportunity, because she thinks someone's stolen the body. And so she runs to the only two people she knows to run to, and that's two people who um, at least have been present, if not fully present, uh, not faithfully present, uh, Peter and the one who's named the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we traditionally associate with John. Um, and they, they head back to the tomb, right? They run to the tomb. And uh, this gospel says that uh, Peter got outrun, right? It's kind of interesting. You think about how all, so many of the gospels make Peter out to be the sort of head honcho, but here he loses a foot race. 
gets there, there second. Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, gets there first. And um, he bends down, uh, looks in the tomb and says, this is verse 5, he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. Peter, the impetuous one, of course he goes right in. Why would he pause? Uh, he, saw the, he, saw the linen, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in place by itself. Then the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Doesn't tell us what. He saw and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. That seems just kind of strange. <laughs> Right? I mean, so it doesn't say Peter believed, uh, but says the disciple whom Jesus loved believed something. doesn't say what he believed, but he saw something. And notice, John takes all this time to talk about the grave clothes that are left behind. Even the napkin that covered his face was rolled up separately and set to the side. You think, like, why does John take all the time to talk about that? I think he wants us to think of Lazarus, right? Uh, Lazarus is, is raised in John's Gospel. Um, quite a long account of that in the Gospel of John. And you recall that Lazarus comes out still bound with his grave clothes. And the napkin still on his face has to be removed for him. Right, he has to have help. Um, not least, maybe, because not only is he bound by the grave clothes, but Lazarus is still actually bound by death. He's going to die again. I mean, Lazarus is resuscitated, but he's going to die just like everybody else. And he does, right? So, whatever... John's trying to say, whatever happened to Lazarus, and amazing as it was, what happened to Jesus was different. Jesus is not bound by death the way that Lazarus was. He leaves his grave clothes behind, and that little napkin over his face, it's rolled up and set aside. Grave robbers don't usually worry about tidiness. Um, nor is there real, I mean, I don't know. I haven't robbed any bodies lately. Um, but in my imagination, if I were, I'd be tempted to take the grave clothes with me. It just seemed like it'd be, yeah, right. Um, but John somehow sees them there uh, 
with a kind of tidiness that seems peculiar. Um, and somehow, seeing that there leads John to some type of belief, although John doesn't specify what it is. Nor does John tell anybody, nor does Peter tell anybody. Uh, they just go back home and leave Mary there weeping by herself outside the tomb. So in verse 11 it says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of, Je of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, I don't know if the angels were there when Peter and John looked in and they didn't see them. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how that works. Um, maybe you only see angels through tears. I don't know. Um, but Mary sees them, and these angels, I mean, this is all they say in John's Gospel, this one question. Right? I want them to say a lot more. I want, them to, I want them to tell Mary what happened. I want them to tell Mary to go tell somebody else. I mean, all those things that are in my head, right, that I know the other Gospels talk about. But it's interesting. In John's Gospel, they ask one question. Why are you weeping? And John spends a lot more time. I mean, she goes on to say, well, you know, says the same thing that she tells the angels, the same thing she told Peter and the other disciple. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. I mean, she wants the body of Jesus so she can mourn. And who can blame her? That's what I would want. Right? If my loved one had died, if my dear friend had died, and I wanted to mourn, and I went to the place that I thought they could mourn, and it's all in disarray. It's like, can I just have some time with the one that I want to mourn with? Why are you weeping? And I wonder, this was the, the part that's been perplexing me for a month. Why? Why does John take so much time to explain where the angels are positioned? So much more than what they say. It's like, why are you weeping? But that's like, there are two angels, one on either end of where Jesus was laying, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, I don't know, maybe John said that because that's the way it was. Okay, possible. Um, I just wonder if there's something else going on, right? Um, and some of you are already thinking this, right? I mean, it's, it sounds vaguely familiar, right? Uh, it makes you think of, of the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant of that had on either end of it, in the middle, two angels whose wings sort of covered what's called the mercy seat 
of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, one on either end, interestingly enough. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant was, the, was uh, traditionally held in the, the holiest of holies. Um, it's where on the Day of Atonement, um, sacrifice was offered once a year uh, for the, the priests and their families and the, the people of Israel. Um, it understood to be a place of God's presence. Right. If you had to um, locate, if you had to locate God's presence, that, that would be a good place to argue for it. And so it's interesting to me that the, the writer of John describes the tomb, the place, you know, Jesus, you know, the, the tombs of the ancient time probably had little ledges cut into the, the walls. So Jesus was probably laid out on one of those ledges. And when Mary goes in, she sees an angel on each end of that ledge. And I don't know, it just makes me wonder if John wants us to think of um, where before the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes God's presence here, interestingly enough, uh, God's mercy is different because it's what they're paying attention to is the absence of Jesus. <laughs> uh, the absence of Jesus uh, because Jesus is now like God's embodied mercy. And he's, he's not there. Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure I ever really paid enough attention to that. I've been kind of intrigued by that part of the story. But then, of course, that's the end of the angels. They don't say anything else. Um, they don't make it clear. They don't answer her question. Um, but it says, when she'd said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was him. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same question that the angels asked, although then Jesus goes on and asks his own. He goes on to say, whom are you looking for? Um, which again is a, a good question. I mean, not like he doesn't know. Um, it's also the question that Jesus asks in the Gospel of John in the very first chapter when the earliest disciples are starting to follow him and he turns around and says like, what are you looking for? Like, who are you looking for? Um, it's what Jesus seems to ask when people want to follow him, right? Like, what are you looking for? Do you, know, like, do you really know what you're looking for? Uh, do you know what you're getting into? So he asks that of Mary. But she doesn't recognize him. And she says, and the text says, supposing him to be the gardener. I love that. Um, it's actually uh, sort of, again, Renaissance art that depicts this scene. And some of my favorite depictions of it has Jesus with kind of a sun hat on and carrying a shovel. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, we'll come back to the gardener bit because there's, there's something interesting about that. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, and here the word sir is 
John loves, you know, the writer of John loves double meanings. All throughout the whole of John, to really understand, you have to understand so much of his vocabulary can be understood in one way or the other. And often Jesus uses words that can be understood two ways, and the people he's talking to take it one way, and he wants them to take it the other way, and there's always this confusion in John over these language. But here, I mean, sir can actually also be translated as Lord, right? It can't just be what you say, just be polite, like sir, but it also can be Lord. Um, so, sir or Lord, so sometimes she's, maybe she's saying more than she knows, right? Uh, Lord, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So she thinks he's the gardener, the person who's, you know, he's been, these tombs in a garden. Um, how appropriate is that? Right? Um, this whole drama in Genesis begins in a garden. Uh, Jesus is betrayed in a garden. He's laid to rest in a garden. And Jesus, the second Adam, as he's known in other parts of Scripture, right? Um, you remember that Adam and Eve were, their original calling was to be gardeners, right? They were given the garden to keep and tend. So I kind of like the idea that Jesus might have actually been gardening. Right, uh, she, she might not have been entirely wrong. Um, who knows? But she mistook him for the gardener. But then Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher, or my rabbi. All it took was one word from his voice. Um, again, I think John's, in the Gospel of John, uh, one of the things that Jesus is, is the, is the good shepherd, right? Who John says the sheep know his voice. He knows his sheep and they know the shepherd's voice. So, John wants us to make that connection. It's Mary as a pretty distraught sheep here is comforted and recognizes the shepherd's voice and responds immediately. It's hard. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, who can imagine who can even begin to imagine the flood of emotions that must have overcome her in that moment? To have gone there early in the morning to grieve, to have been thwarted, and all the distress around that. To keep telling people, they've taken the body and I don't know where they've laid him. Anybody she can find, she tells that to disciples, angels, the gardener, right? It's like, where is the body? I just want to mourn. Would somebody you know, give me that respect, that privilege? And then she hears the shepherd's voice. One word, 
just her name. Now, John doesn't say, the Gospel of John doesn't say what she did in that moment. But Jesus' response is, don't cling to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. It's hard to imagine that Mary didn't either reach out to embrace Jesus, fall on her knees, and throw her arms around his legs. I mean, it's, I, well, I can't imagine. It's hard to imagine she just kind of stood there. I mean, maybe she did, just in shock. Who knows? But she, so preoccupied with the body of Jesus, it's hard to imagine that she didn't I mean, what I would do, I mean, if the person that you came to mourn is alive and very much in front of you, it's hard to imagine you're indifferent. Um, but I don't think Jesus is just talking about, I mean, people have often wondered, by this, wondered about this puzzling thing that Jesus said to her about not clinging on to him. Uh, and again, lots of famous art about this. Um, but I think that the writer is trying to get us to see that Mary understandably thinks that she's got her old life with Jesus back, like my teacher's back. Right? We can go on. We can, we can, we can do what we've always done. We can be together. You know, I can follow you, I can learn more, I can, you know, I mean, who wouldn't think that? And Jesus seems to be suggesting that she has, she has to let go. She can't cling to that, that Jesus. Jesus had told the disciples, and there was no reason to think that Mary Magdalene might not have been there, since she's a close disciple, that he was going to have to go away, and that was going to be a good thing, right? He, meant, he says this, if I go, I'll send another comforter. Jesus is somehow going to be with them in a different way, uh, and it's going to be good for them. It's hard to imagine that they thought it was good for them, and Mary probably right now is thinking, I'm not worried about that. I mean, it's hard to imagine she even had that in her head. She wants Jesus back. But Jesus refuses and suggests something brand new is going on. And it, again, it's easy to miss. But Jesus says, go tell my brothers. Well, that's interesting. And tell them that I'm going, that I'm ascending to my father and your father. And we're so used to that kind of language, we miss it. But John has never, until now, had on the lips of Jesus the phrase, your father, referring to God. It's always been my father. Right. Now something's different. <laughs> something's different now. 
uh, it's not just my father, it's also your father, which means go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And she goes, it says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Mary Magdalene is the first one to actually see Jesus. Um, Peter went in the tomb first. He didn't see Jesus. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus first. Um, which is kind of crazy, as you all know. Uh, you know the way women were regarded in first century Palestine. So if you were making up a story about someone rising from the dead, it's hard to imagine if you wanted it to be credible that you would have had a woman be the first one. Um, but she was. And notice that John doesn't say anything about the disciples doubting her. He just says, she told them, I have seen the Lord. And it's interesting. I mean, Mary Magdalene was so highly regarded in the early church that it wasn't long before she got the title, the apostle to the apostles. That's a pretty interesting title. The apostle to the apostles. Now, the, the apostle is someone who's sent, right? And the criteria for an apostle in the early church was you had to see the risen Lord and you had to be commissioned. She's the first apostle. Right? First one to see and the first one sent. And she sent to the other apostles. It's a pretty remarkable story, actually. Um, and it's, it doesn't take long before it's kind of glossed over in some of the, yeah, some of the other Apostle Paul talks about Jesus appearing first to Peter. Well, I guess first to Peter among the 12, <laughs> um, but not first to Peter. So, so this is a remarkable kind of story here of Mary Magdalene having her world turned upside down in an instant, uh, coming, wanting something so desperately, grieving. And I think maybe as we close this morning, I've, I've been trying to think about uh, in a week's worth of showers, uh, if, if we had been standing with Mary Magdalene this morning, um, weeping, or being with people who we know have been weeping this week, um, all kinds of people have been weeping this week. People have been grieving all kinds of losses this week. Maybe you have wept this week for your own losses. Uh, maybe people dear to you have been weeping this week for their losses. 
Uh, certainly, people in Johnson City have been weeping for uh, loss of loved ones, loss of jobs, loss of physical abilities, uh, loss of mental capacity, uh, loss of, um, well, you can think of so many things that people grieve over, right? People lose their dignity. People have their rights taken. People have, I mean, we could go on and on where people grieve and mourn. Um, if we were standing there today, weeping with those who weep, including ourselves, would it be good news um, to turn and see Jesus standing there, not denying our grief, um, maybe asking us why we're weeping, um, not chastising us, but with this deep sense that Jesus knows our name, calls us by name, and suggests that something something new is happening, that a different kind of life is available. Um, the ancient Eastern Church calls the first day of the week, we call the first day of the week, they call it the, the eighth day of creation. Right? It's the first day of the new creation. It's not just another first day. It's a, it's a, and the, the resurrection day is the eighth day of creation. I mean, John's, the Gospel of John has this creation. John recapitulates, retells the whole biblical story. Opening verse of John, in the beginning was the word. It echoes Genesis. Right? You've got this whole creation story. John has Jesus do seven signs. And then he says, it is finished. Right? As if creation is finished. And then there's this new creation, this resurrection, the eighth day of the new creation. So what does it mean for us to stand on the cusp, even today, of this new creation that's breaking into our world now? What's it mean that there's new life available now. John's very clear. There's new life available now. What's it mean for you and I in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our mourning, in the midst of a world that's grieving and mourning? What's it mean to live into this eighth day of creation, this, this beginning of this new creation? What's it mean to live into that hope and to that new life? Uh, is that good news? Can can we say, like Mary said, I have seen the Lord? Let's pray. <coughs> Gracious God, give us eyes to see the risen Lord this day. Give us eyes to see the risen Lord in the gathered community. 
Give us ears to hear the risen Lord in the word proclaimed and preached. Give us eyes to see the risen Lord in the, the stranger, the prisoner, the thirsty, the hungry. Give us eyes to see the risen Lord in one another. And may our daily lives be marked by the life of the risen one. We pray this through the one who is no longer bound by death. Jesus Christ. Amen.